Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. On July 29th, 1961, in New York City, there was no good reason to be outside. It was rainy, humid, cloudy, and all around gross. But that's okay, because if you stayed home that Saturday and tuned in to WRVR on the radio, you got a real treat. Right in the middle of the Riverside Church Hootenanny special, you would have heard the announcer address the crowd as follows. We're going to go back to our regular folk program and bring you now a fellow who's been around New York for about a year. He also performs in various coffee houses. He plays harmonica. He sings a lot of songs by Woody Guthrie. He sings a lot of his own material. He comes from Gallup, New Mexico. Bobby Dylan. Bobby Dylan, can you imagine? Now, this clearly happened before Dylan became a household name, but the performance was notable. During the set, Dylan ripped into a singular rendition of the old murder ballad, Omi Wise, one of only two times it was ever caught on tape, a legendary bootleg. In the grand folk tradition, Dylan put his own spin on the lyrics and Things are a little distorted, so it's unique to him. Don't get me wrong, the story's there. A woman gets taken out by her man once she is no longer worth his time. And if you listen to all the different stories of Omi Weiss, you might even think that's her fault. But in songs about killing girls, what else is new? There's a reason murder ballads sound sexist to modern ears. Seems like an awful lot of them are about killing women. It's a whole subgenre, dead girls everywhere. There's this guy, true crime writer, Harold Schechter, and he explains in the Yale Review that the songs, which are known as murdered girl ballads, are tear-jerking tunes about trusting young women, impregnated and slain by heartless seducers. The murders committed in these songs are carried out against a soft, helpless, innocent creature who's beloved and gentle and youthful and beautiful. And that's part of the problem. Now, let's pause here for a quick reminder. Women don't need to be beautiful, innocent, and helpless to deserve empathy. We're all humans. That said, the sense of injustice these songs inspire, their dark versus light dichotomy, is a part of why they endure. You know, it is striking to look back on the inequality women were treated with until pretty recently. And it's wild that murdering women is still the one sort of crime people fixate on. Experts will tell you that it's normal to be interested in true crime. Up to a point. There are lots of reasons that it's appealing, especially to women. The evil behavior itself is as fascinating as trying to figure out why someone does it. Learning about these stories prepare us to protect ourselves should some killer land at your front door. Plus, it lets you feel lucky because you're not the victim. So it's no surprise that murdered women and girls are the focus of many true crime stories. 
They're at the center of the documentaries we binge. They drive clicks on the internet as we try to solve a whodunit. They inspire unforgettable ballads that get handed down through generations. And they're the subject of an endless number of podcasts, including this one. I mean, that is why you're here, right? This is the story of Omi Weiss, the mysterious woman in the water. I'm Courtney E. Smith, and you're listening to Songs in the Key of Death. There are a few things we know about Omi's murder for certain, thanks to the archival work of Robert Root in a 1984 piece in the North Carolina Folklore Journal. We also know the stories that floated around the county after Omi's death because they were documented in the lyrics of a murder ballad and one strange poem, but we'll come back to that shortly. Let's start with the facts. In March 1807, Jonathan Lewis was indicted by a grand jury for the murder of, quote, a certain Omeo Wise in Randolph County, North Carolina. He pled not guilty. He was detained without bail, and a trial was planned for October. Witnesses were already being subpoenaed on the day he was arrested. Jonathan was eventually transferred to the Guilford County Jail, where his trial would be held. Not 10 days after the transfer, the county magistrates contacted the commander of a local militia. The sheriff suspected Jonathan would try to escape, and they needed help. The commander sent five men to guard him, and the militia was tasked with staying there until the day after Jonathan's trial. Turns out, they were on to something. Just a few days after the militiamen showed up, Jonathan escaped. Root's research indicates that his murder trial might not have happened at all. Records that would confirm it are thought to be lost in a fire. And the evidence of what went down during his escape is, quote, sketchy. Yeah, they were saying sketchy in the 1800s. The records show he was captured and jailed again for the offense of escaping. So did the county just decide to let the murder slide? It doesn't totally make sense, given that we know they pursued him for the jailbreak. Unfortunately, any confirmation that he was also punished for murder seems to have vanished. Most of what we think we know about Omi comes from legend. We'll start with the song, which tells a tale of sex, deceit, and drowning. It begins with Omi at Adams Spring, which is the homestead of William Adams, where she worked. It speaks of a man named John, sometimes called Lewis, convincing Omi to elope. But John doesn't want to marry Omi. It's a trick. She gets on the back of his horse, and he takes her to the river. When they arrive, he tells her he's going to drown her. It's depraved. It's cruel. Omi begs for her life. And like a true creep, John gives her a hug and a kiss and then pushes her into the water where he leaves her for dead. Her body's found later by two boys who were out fishing. In the song, her death is a warning for other women to be wary of who they ride off on horseback with and to protect their virtue. The John character in the song is such a bad man that the whole town knows he killed her as soon as it happens. He's arrested, and none of his friends bail him out. Yikes. But the blame is still on Omi in this song, because she allowed her reputation to be sullied and became unmarriable. 
there's no bigger sin a woman can commit. Tragedy was bound to befall her. When a long-form poem called A True Account of Naomi Wise was discovered at UCLA in the mid-'80s from a bulk donation of books made in 1952, we get a look into the gossip about Omi. The poem was apparently written by Mary Whitty, a girl who lived in the area and was born in 1801, so she would have grown up hearing this story. It's a handwritten account of idle talk about Omi and her courtship with Jonathan. But in this version, Omi was the mother of two bastard children by different men, and she was a bit older than her beau. The poem says Omi performed hard labor to earn money to care for her children. It also says Omi was pregnant, again, for the third time. The baby was Jonathan's, who the writer paints as egotistical and, quote, too fond of carnality. <laughs> That's a pretty solid 19th century burn, eh? Uh, Mary's sharp tongue hits Omi too, though, painting her as an inappropriate match for a high-ranking man like Jonathan, to whom she was happy to attach herself. The actual Jonathan Lewis had a family that's best described as colorful. His father and uncle became locally infamous when, um, one shot the other for taking in his wife when she ran away after getting a brutal beating from her husband. Clearly, these are well-balanced and normal people, so let's keep moving. To all appearances, Jonathan was more stable than the men in his life. He worked at a cushy job in a dry goods shop where, rumor has it, his mother urged him to marry the shop owner's daughter, who had a hefty dowry and a higher position in society. Omi messed that up. She told everyone that Jonathan stopped to see her when he rode between his family's home and his job each week. Jonathan's other girl didn't appreciate that. The poem says that Omi brought disgrace to his name by not keeping the baby a secret, as he asked her to. It describes how an angry Jonathan planned to convince Omi that he would take her to the preacher to be married and killed her instead. One eye-grabbing thing in the poem is that Omi didn't seem to be afraid of him. She stands up to him. I guess that's what happens if a woman finally writes the story. So thank you, Mary Woody. Mary also calls his actions vile and baseless, condemning Omi's murder. Once again, when Omi's body was found in the poem, the local population was so angered and so immediately suspicious of Jonathan that his guilt was a foregone conclusion. And that lines up with the official record showing that subpoenas were sent out the day he was arrested. Then Omi's story gets another retelling in Naomi Wise, The Wrongs of a Beautiful Girl, a novel published in the mid-1800s by Charles Vernon. Oh, and he wasn't a real person. That was the pen name of a very established man, Braxton Craven who would become the second president of what became Duke University and later the president of Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Craven was born in Randolph County, North Carolina in 1822, the same place where Omi was killed. Like Mary Whitty, he probably grew up hearing her story and song. His fictionalized account took Omi's story in a colorful and different direction. One where she was a young, naive maiden of extraordinary beauty and Jonathan was a nefarious murderer. 
It was very much in the style of the Romantics. And we certainly know women can't be sympathized with unless someone finds them fuckable. So thanks for the reminder, Braxton. In his novel, he writes Omi as an orphan who lived in a rural village, describing her as, quote, the gentle, confiding, unprotected creature that a man like John would love by instinct. Naomi's love for John was pure and ardent. In this telling, John was engaged to his boss's daughter, Hetty Elliott. But this John also proposed to Naomi. Eventually, rumors that Naomi was pregnant reached Hetty and John denied them. Things reached a boiling point after Naomi threatened to sue John over the engagement. That's when he decided to kill her. The details about the horseback ride and the drowning stay the same. But hearing the story again, I am struck by how monstrous of a reaction that is. Don't like how the woman in your life is handling things? Drown her. In Craven's account, an elderly woman, Mrs. Davis, sent her sons to check things out when she heard a suspicious noise at the river. The boys didn't want to go, and their delay meant that they arrived just as a mysterious figure on horseback rode away. A search party went looking for Omi the next day, tracking her movements. As in all the stories, she was found in the water. The coroner ruled her death, drowning by violence. The tradition of reimagining the life of Omi Wise continues in The Rose and the Briar, a 2005 essay collection. Songwriter Anna Domino added her spin to Omi's story, penning a letter in the voice of this mysterious woman. Domino's retelling doesn't shirk away from Omi's past, but it paints a picture of how she might have hidden her two bastard children in plain sight. It tells the story of a mother who's a member of the working poor and how hard that life is. It's heartbreaking, laying out Omi's loving vision of her new beau, John, who is her savior. Her romantic idea of him coming to take her away from a rough life, to finally be married after so many disappointments, makes your heart drop. Because you know it ends badly. The story of Omi Weiss we know best, though, is the one detailed in the song's lyrics, which have evolved and changed as different performers played it. The original lyrics tell a specific story, with names, locations, and Jonathan's intentions all laid bare. Those details make it seem true. Eleanor R. Longwilgus set out to find the origins of the song, taking up the research of her late husband. She thought the songwriter must have known Jonathan to know so many details of his plan, and that it must have been written soon after Omi's murder. Omi Weiss is only one of many murdered girl ballads. There's also the 400-year-old English song, The Wexford Girl, which got a second life in the 1950s as the Knoxville Girl, thanks to the Leuven brothers. Then you have Poor Ellen Smith. Pretty Polly, The Lily of the West, Little Sadie, and on and on and on. The only thing longer than the list of murdered girl ballads is the list of people who perform them. Now, the song collectors and archivists who researched Omi Wise could also tell you all about how the song connects to countless European murdered girl ballads, with tales of promiscuous women being washed clean by water as they drown. Uh, You know, it's the idea that when women are free be that sexually, intellectually, or financially, they're dangerous. 
And that reinforces the old adage that the rules aren't the same for women and that the punishment for breaking the rules is deadly. Omi Wise is one of the oldest in the American murder ballad tradition that continues to thrive, being covered in modern times by Elvis Costello with Anna and Kate McGarrickle, Ockerville River, the Nationals' Bryce Desner alongside 8th Blackbird, plus, of course, Bob Dylan's live version, Shirley Collins, and the definitive recording by North Carolina's own Doc Watson. The original recording of it popped up on a slick country record by an opera singer turned studio rat using the name Vernon Dalhart in 1925. Just a year earlier, Dalhart recorded The Wreck of the Old 97, which became the first million-selling record in country music history. Thanks to that hit, his version of Omi Wise was heard far and wide on AM radio frequencies across America. But there's another old-time version from the era that feels much more authentic, even if no one released it for another quarter century. G.B. Grayson recorded it in the mid-20s, but his take didn't come out until 1952's Anthology of American Folk Music, collected by Harry Smith. Grayson was a blind fiddle player from Tennessee who teamed up with guitarist Henry Whittier to record traditional songs and write some originals. He carried his version of Omi Wise around the countryside, like a wandering musician in the tradition of a Shakespearean minstrel. And that's exactly what Grayson was, a fiddle player who roamed from town to town busking for cash. How he sang it is how people in Appalachia would have known it. His work with Whittier is what inspired record companies to find the guys like Dalhart and do more polished versions of these ballads. As for Omi Wise, her real story isn't one of a proper lady or a beautiful, helpless creature. It's more complex than a song about how one romance went bad. We remember her, thanks to the song that survived her, as a woman who was deceived and drowned in the river. We remember the myth of her, and we should remember her as the woman who stood up to a lying man, demanding a better life for herself and her baby. If there's any moral to be had in the story of Omi Wise, it's that we can keep rewriting her story and choose to mythologize her not as a victim, but as a woman who was sick of this shit and wasn't going to take it anymore. Thanks for tuning in to Songs in the Key of Death. For more information on Omi Wise, check our show notes. We reference texts that include Mary Woody's poem, A True Account of Naomi Wise, Robert Root's account of the life of Naomi Wise in the North Carolina Folklore Journal, and Eleanor R. Longwilgus's book on Naomi Wise. Now, from deep underwater, here's Sad 13 and their modern retelling of Omi Wise. Can't honestly
From Nevermind Media, this is Songs in the Key of Death, a series about murder ballads and the true tales that inspired them. You can find extended liner notes with all of our research, sources, playlists, and links at nevermind.fm death. This episode was written by me, your host, Courtney E. Smith. Our executive producers and editors are Sean Cannon and Melissa Locker. Sound design is by Sean Cannon and Madeline McCormick. John Dufalo is our session engineer. Score for this episode was provided by Madeline McCormick with additional music from Kojin Tashiro. The version of Omi Weiss you just heard was arranged and performed by Sadie Dupuis. And our theme song is by Blood Red Sun. If you like our show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review and tell a friend about us, especially if they love music and murder. Hearing about murder, that is. We'll see you next time.